You're listening to an amazing podcast from an amazing podcast company. episode is brought to you by Youngstown Tile. For spectacular flooring, go bold, go local, go Youngstown Tile. And by River Rock at the Amp. Saturdays in the summertime, there's no other place to be than at the Amp in Warren. And before you go, stop by the Sunrise Inn for the best food in Warren. And by Rick Perillo, author of the new true crime thriller, There's More Bodies Out There. Available now on rickperillo.com. Welcome to the Vice Squad Pod. I'm your host, Vince Greer. Even in 1941, Monday nights were usually slow in restaurants. It was a sparse crowd at Prime Steakhouse on Park Avenue, just south of downtown Warren, with maybe 20 people dining and drinking. Jimmy Munsine, the restaurant's owner, was there overseeing business, such as it was. Munsine, 52, was a well-regarded, if not completely legitimate businessman in Warren. Before he owned the restaurant, even if the liquor license was in the name of his nephew, Felix Monfrina, he owned the Hollyhock Gardens, one of the area's preeminent nightclubs. He had also operated two successful dog racing tracks and was recognized as a powerful behind-the-scenes figure in Trumbull County politics. He was also known as the king of the county's underworld. Monsignor had been in a car wreck that January, and he was talking to a representative from the hospital who had come to see him about a medical bill. Nearby at the bar were two men, described by a witness as exceptionally well-dressed, sipping Haig and Haig scotch, an order surprising enough to Munsine that he took notice. Munsine said he was going out to Pine Street to find a friend, and the two men at the bar sprang into action. One shouldered away Earl Huffman, the man talking to Munsine, saying, keep out of this, and held onlookers at bay while both started firing, one with a 45 caliber pistol, the other with a 38 caliber special. Munsine groaned and slumped to the ground. Felix Monfrino heard the gunfire, and ran into the bar where he was shot by the other gunman. A coup de grace was administered to both men while they were on the floor. Monsignor had a dozen bullet wounds. It was estimated he'd been shot six or seven times. Some wounds were entry and exit wounds. Monfrino had four. Huffman reported that a bullet went through his coat during the shootings. The gunman escaped out of the back door into the night, sparking a regional manhunt. And with that, the life and organized crime career of Jimmy Monsignor was over. James Mancini was born in 1889 or 1890, depending on the source, in Colalongo, in Italy's Abruzzo region. Geographically in the central part of the country, but culturally part of southern Italy, where organized crime influence was heavy. As a teen, he came to the United States, ending up in the Ohio River Valley in Ohio, along the West Virginia line. The rolling hills of Appalachia were called home for the Italian immigrants who settled there, setting up thriving communities and working, at least for a time, in the coal mines and mills there. Ultimately, Munsine married and had the first of his three sons, and the family moved to Trumbull County in 1915, where he was able to find a job at Trumbull Steel, later Republic Steel. The Munsines were among the thousands of immigrants relocating to the Mahoning Valley as mills and factories started to dot the banks of the Mahoning River. In fact, Warren's population more than doubled 
between the censuses of 1910 and 1920. On January 17, 1920, the Volstead Act went into effect, banning the production, importation, and distribution of intoxicating beverages. After working in the mill until 1920 and operating a grocery store in Pittsburgh with his brother-in-law Bernard Monfrino, Monsigne, taking on a nom de guerre based on everyone's pronunciation of his given name, Mancini, found his niche running nightclubs. His first was the Follies Berger on the boardwalk in Atlantic City, New Jersey, then a popular beachfront resort town on the Atlantic coast. Even then, Monsignor had acquired a reputation as the bootlayer king of Trumbull County. South of Warren Square, bordered by Pine and Park Avenues and Fulton Street, was the area known in Warren as the Flats. In the heady days of Prohibition, it was a rough-and-tumble neighborhood, home to the city's red-light district, where residents could go for a drink, some entertainment, infer from that what you will, and a card or dice game. And on Pine Avenue, Monsignor set up his base of operations, Jim's Place. The two-story building was a notorious speakeasy, and upstairs was a gambling room. Despite its well-known reputation, no charges seemed to stick to Monsignor himself. He'd beaten a rap in municipal court on bootlegging, but in January 1926, Monsignor was indicted on the charge of bribery. It was alleged that the previous November he'd offered Trumbull County Sheriff J.W. Smith $500 as protection to allow a gambling den to remain open. The trial started in February and quickly became the talk of Trumbull County. Sheriff Smith testified that Munsine had come to visit him at the county jail in November. At that time, it was common for county sheriffs to live at homes adjoining the jail and courthouse. Smith testified that Munsine asked, hypothetically, what the sheriff would do if he mysteriously came into some money. The sheriff's wife said a man came to the door a couple days later with an envelope, which she took. Sheriff Smith opened the envelope in the presence of a local lawyer and found $500 with the promise of a monthly payment. Mrs. Smith said James Munsine was the man who'd given her the envelope. Helen Wilkins, the sheriff's cook, said the same. Both claimed they could identify Munsine from a stay in the county jail earlier in 1925 after Smith had raided a speakeasy and Munsine was among those arrested. They also said they'd seen Munsine hanging around the jail throughout the summer. Munsine testified on his own behalf, saying he had spent the summer at his club in Atlantic City, and the conversation the previous November with the sheriff centered on the two potentially opening a club together. He said the night the bribe was allegedly received, he was eating dinner at a local restaurant and provided a host of witnesses to attest to that, including a couple of Warren police officers. It took less than three hours for the jury to find Munsine guilty, but his lawyers appealed the verdict, saying the judge had erred in instructing the jury, and an appeals court agreed, overturning the verdict and ordering a new trial. When his second trial started in 1927, Munsine's defense then included Luther Day, whose father William served as William McKinley's Secretary of State and later as a U.S. Supreme Court Justice. Luther Day would later serve as president of the Cleveland Bar Association, and has been described as possibly the greatest trial lawyer in Ohio history. Day didn't help, as the jury again found Munsine guilty, this time deliberating for less than an hour. Again, Munsine's lawyers appealed on the same grounds, and again the verdict was overturned and a new trial was ordered. Both Munsine's trials drew crowds and extensive press coverage, so attorneys sought a change of venue, arguing that a fair trial was impossible in Trumbull County. Munsine's third trial was moved to Ashtabula County, Day would not take part in Munsine's third trial. Instead, another legal titan was retained, Clarence Seward Darrow. Day might have been the greatest trial lawyer in Ohio, 
But Darrow was, at that point, the most celebrated trial lawyer in America. Darrow had just come off defending John Scopes, a Tennessee teacher accused of violating state law by teaching evolution. In a case that became a flashpoint in the battle between science and religion, Scopes was found guilty, but that verdict was overturned by the state Supreme Court and no retrial was pursued. Darrow was also noted for his defense of Leopold and Loeb in the killing of Bobby Franks in what was called the Trial of the Century in Chicago and had defended Eugene Debs, as well as the two men accused of bombing the Los Angeles Times, a defense that led to Darrow himself being charged, but not convicted, of bribing jurors. Darrow was a kinsman native. He'd moved to Chicago after being denied a home purchase in Ashtabula. The seller didn't think he'd become successful enough to pay off the house. Darrow had become one of the most celebrated trial lawyers in America, not to mention rich, but for all his success, he never won a case in his home county. On a visit to the area, Munsine had arranged a meeting and asked him to be his defense attorney. With retirement on his mind and a healthy distaste for prohibition, Darrow agreed to take what he planned to be his last case pro bono. Jimmy Munsine's third trial started in Jefferson on May 7, 1928, and the combination of Darrow's fame and Munsine's infamy ensured large crowds and press coverage for this trial as well. Once again, Sheriff Smith testified, as did J. Buckwalter, the lawyer who was with Smith when he opened the envelope to reveal the money. Darrow, on cross-examination, questioned Buckwalter and Smith's affiliation with the Ku Klux Klan. Thanks to Birth of a Nation, a silent film that glorified the Reconstruction-era Klan, the organization had been revitalized in the early 20th century. In the North, it wasn't so much anti-black as it was anti-immigrant and anti-Catholic, and found a willing audience in Northern Ohio, electing mayors and council members. A 1924 march through Niles ended in a melee between Klan members and Italian immigrants. In fact, it was that riot that led to the incumbent sheriff being turned out in favor of Smith. Darrow had planted the seeds of the idea of anti-Italian prejudice in the minds of the jurors. Aside from Darrow's cross-examination, the trial seemed not much different from the two that preceded it. But on May 10th, Munsing's defense called a surprise witness, James Bain, a hotel manager in Niles who previously served as a Trumbull County Sheriff's deputy under Smith and had run against Smith in an election. Bain testified that Smith planned to frame Munsing on a bribery charge, an allegation Smith denied. Another former deputy, Thomas Thomas, testified for the defense that Wilkins said she didn't believe Munsing would deliver his own bribe. Again, a statement Wilkins denied. Darrow gave a 90-minute closing statement, not quite the 12 hours he'd given for Leopold and Loeb. After 10 ballots, the jury said they were unable to return a verdict, and mistrial was declared. One year and eight days later, Monsignor's fourth trial, his fourth annual trial, some wags noted, began. The trial trod the same familiar ground as the preceding three, but this time Darrow dispensed with a closing statement and immediately asked the judge to give the case to the jury which deliberated for more than 10 hours before declaring once again that no verdict could be reached. A new trial was set for October 28, 1929, but a continuance was granted because Darrow was on a trip to Europe at the time. It was a fateful decision. The day after the trial was supposed to start was the stock market crash that precipitated the Great Depression. Darrow had lost his fortune and retirement was no longer an option. He was ready to settle, as was the county, which was nearly a strap for cash. So in 1930, as jury selection for the fifth trial was underway, Monsignor pleaded guilty to attempted bribery. He was given a year's probation and ordered to pay court costs for all of his trials, estimated around $2,500, 
which was considered a similar amount to a significant fine. And as for the $500 at the root of Munsin's multiple trials, because he pleaded guilty, the money was determined to belong to Munsin, but he had no interest in it. Trumbull County Judge William Carter ordered it turned over to the Warren Community Fund. The Great Depression also led to the election of New York Governor Franklin Roosevelt as president in 1932, and no doubt contributed to the noble experiment of prohibition being repealed the following year. Jim's place, which remained a frequent target for raids and on a couple of occasions of bombings, was no longer a speakeasy. Following his plea deal after four trials, Munsin was seen as bulletproof, if only metaphorically, in Trumbull County. Jim's place soon became Hollyhock Gardens, which for a brief time was a nightclub that rivaled any other in the area. The Roadhouse Gambling Room became a posh casino atop a set of mirrored stairs. Munsin even promised all the games were on the level. He boasted he didn't fix anything but as the house he didn't need to. Nearby was a bulletproof counting room where thousands of dollars flowed every night. Visitors to the nightclub included heavyweight boxing champ Max Bear, and stage acts included Sophie Tucker, the last of the Red Hot Llamas, and a barber from Cannesburg, Pennsylvania by way of Meadville, whose rich baritone would fill living rooms for generations. Perry Como. It was said that one unnamed act, making $1,500 weekly, needed a two-week advance to cover losses upstairs at the Hollyhocks Casino. On September 27, 1936, a fire tore through the Hollyhock. An investigation determined it had been set, but Munsing was moving on to other pursuits. The following year, the building was used as a base of operations for Union officials as a little steel strike raged throughout northern Ohio. The Hollyhock remained open, serving food and taking horse bets until 1947. Four years later, it was sold to the Warren Rescue Mission, which used it as a homeless shelter. The building was ultimately torn down in the 1970s, a victim of urban renewal. Monsignor opened two dog racing tracks. The first was in Fowler, and in the depths of the Depression, was successful enough to support a $100 a night sweepstakes. The next one was at Lake Milton, not far from the Craig Beach Amusement Park that was a familiar recreation spot for decades. The track provided its own recreation, with excursion trains and buses coming from as far away as Pittsburgh. And there was additional entertainment with performances by Duke Ellington and his orchestra. And one night in 1939, a race between Olympic gold medalist Jesse Owens and one of the track's prized greyhounds. But the decade ended with Munsing being plagued by legal troubles, as partners sued over his empire. The Prime Steakhouse, which had replaced the Hollyhock as Munsing's club, also regularly had police officers there. Monfrino, the holder of the liquor license, had it revoked after slot machines were found in the restaurant. Ultimately, the dog track was closed in 1940 as pressure built for a potential state investigation. On January 31, 1941, Monsignor wrecked his Cadillac on a snowy road in North Jackson. Two passengers died, and he and two other passengers were taken to the south side unit of the Youngstown Hospital. Monsignor spent two weeks at the hospital and was also charged related to the crash with driving with a suspended license and driving with improper tags. The license plates on his car were registered to his oldest son, Nofri. But his luck ran out a couple months later at the bar of his own steakhouse. Ironically, it was his 27th wedding anniversary. The services for Munsin and Monfrino epitomized the cliché of the mob funeral. Monfrino drew more than 400 people for his service and burial at Pineview Memorial Park, but it was poorly attended compared to Munsin's, starting at his estate on Todd Avenue, just outside the Warren city limits. 
The procession was estimated at more than a mile and a half long, with at least a hundred cars, to Oakwood Cemetery, Munsine's final resting place. While Munsine and Monfrino were being mourned, a wide-scale investigation was underway. The night of the murder, phone lines were jammed with the Warren Police Department, more with people who wanted information on the killings than with actual tips to follow. A dragnet was set up within minutes of the shootings, but the killers had gotten away. The slayings were recognized almost immediately as the work of professionals, and leads were followed in Youngstown, Cleveland, and Pittsburgh. Two men drew suspicion for having been in the restaurant about an hour before the killings and asking a waiter which man was Munsin, but they were determined to be out-of-town businessmen who were merely curious about Munsin's notoriety. The descriptions of the assassins were scant beyond their natty attire, but their drinking habits provided a clue. Police were able to lift a fingerprint off one of the scotch glasses. In 1944, a Trumbull County grand jury handed up secret indictments against two men, both reputed to be involved with the notorious Purple Gang in Detroit, Charles Monazim and Tommy Viola. Monazim was at the time a guest of the federal government at Leavenworth Prison in Kansas, serving a 25-year sentence for a bank robbery in Detroit. He was never tried for his role in Munsin's killing. In 1945, Viola was located in Tucson, Arizona. He was arrested without incident in a bar there. News reports at the time noted he was a scotch drinker and quickly arraigned in Arizona. After a fight over extradition, he was returned to Ohio to stand trial. Following a 13-day trial, the jury deliberated for five hours before finding him guilty of Munsin's murder. He was sentenced to the Ohio Penitentiary in Columbus on the site of what is now the city's arena district. Other notorious inmates of the prison included Harry Pierpont, a member of John Dillinger's gang, Bugs Moran, former leader of the Northside Mob in Chicago and intended victim of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, and later Cleveland-area osteopath Sam Shepard. On September 21, 1960, Viola was working as a clerk in the prison office. As a trustee, he had been given special privileges and used them to simply walk away while he was on the way to the prison dormitory. Law enforcement in Trumbull County remained on high alert with the belief that Viola still held a grudge against William Johnson, the Warren police chief whose dogged four-year pursuit brought him to justice. Within months, Viola was once again on the FBI's most wanted list as an escapee, as he had been nearly 20 years earlier as a fugitive. In April 1961, Viola was located in Detroit and returned to prison. He would be released from prison five years later, facing a terminal diagnosis of cancer. He died three months after his release. By the time of Viola's recapture, another mob war was at hand in the Mahoning Valley. Among the casualties of that war was Mike Farah, killed while swinging a golf club in the backyard of his Warren home. Farah and his twin brother John had supplanted Munsin as Rackett's bosses in Trumbull County. There are even theories that they were responsible for Munsin's demise, just as their jungle inn had replaced the Hollyhock. Compared with the Farahs and the gangsters that followed, Munsin was seen almost as a benign despot, running gambling casinos that were on the level, refusing to dip a toe into prostitution. But he paved the way for the bloodshed and corruption that followed. Tonight's story was written from research from the Warren Tribune Chronicle, the Youngstown Vindicator, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, the book The Racketeer and the Reformer by Jonathan Kinzer, and the book Welcome to the Jungle Inn by Alan May. That was an amazing podcast from an amazing podcast company. 
to watch with video, check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash amazingpodcastcompany. For more, visit our website at www.amazingpodco.com. If you enjoyed the show, please click the like and subscribe buttons and share it with your friends. It goes a long way in helping us produce more amazing content. 